welcome back to the Global on the Granite State podcast. My name is Tim Horgan, and I am the Executive Director of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. We have another great episode for you today, where we speak with the global education movement here at Southern New Hampshire University about the programs they are running around the world to help educate refugees and other displaced people. We also speak with Chase Sova of the World Food Program USA about the work that they are doing to help end the global food crisis. As always, we are excited that you have decided to listen in today. So let's go ahead and get started. We are here with Chase Sova, the Senior Director of Public Policy and Research at the World Food Program USA. Thanks so much for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Tim. So you've been working for quite some time on food systems and food policies. You've worked in over 15 developing countries and worked for the UN, and now you are with the World Food Program USA. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what the World Food Program USA does? Yeah, absolutely. So WFP USA, we are a 501c3 nonprofit organization based here in Washington, D.C. And our job, long and short of it, is to provide support for the mission of the United Nations World Food Program here in the American market. So that happens in a couple different ways. On one side of the equation, we are providing an opportunity for the American public to get involved and provide financial support to the mission of the World Food Program. You know, the other half of our house, which is really the part of the shop that I work with, is the public policy side of what WFBUSA does. It's not super uncommon for a United Nations agency to have some sort of 501c3 or nonprofit organization to help educate members of Congress about the United Nations mission. So that's what we spend a lot of our time on in particular, working up on Capitol Hill, educating members of Congress on the problem of hunger, and really trying to get the word out about the World Food Program. And I will say this, I mean, I've been with the World Food Program USA now for about three years, and I've been in the hunger space for a lot longer than that. And it has always amazed me how few people have actually heard of the United Nations World Food Program. So part of our mission at WPUSA is to get the word out. I think it's a really long-kept secret and one that we can't afford to keep any longer. Well, and speaking of getting the word out, we're really excited to have you coming up in a couple of days to talk about your programs here in New Hampshire. So thank you so much for giving your time to this important topic. We're thrilled to be up there. And I think a big part of what we're trying to do, too, is to get some of these conversations outside of Washington, D.C., in the common circles where they're happening. And so we're glad to have the opportunity and glad you're providing that, for lack of a better word, service to folks up in New Hampshire. Well, thank you. We hear a lot about individual famines and that climate change is a looming issue for global food systems. Can you tell us a little bit about the scope of global hunger as it stands today? I mean, a big question. There's a lot of ways to tackle this. If you look across the world, I mean, we're now a planet of about 7 billion people. Right now, 821 million people around the planet simply don't have enough food to eat day in and day out. These are folks that we refer to as chronically hungry people. Really, chronic hunger affects about every one in nine of us on the planet today. And that's really remarkable when you think about it. I mean, we're sitting here, we're having this conversation in 2019. We are talking about man's space flight to Mars. We are having 21st century conversations, and yet we're still here talking about the problem of global hunger and the fact that global hunger has risen for the last three years. 
It's really an astonishing thing. You know, we live in a world of contradictions, of course, but this one, I think, is pretty perilous. So 821 million people around the planet were undernourished. There's another way that we measure hunger, though, which is a little bit more germane to what the World Food Program does. So we measure also something called acute hunger. And that's the number of people around the planet who are suffering from emergency levels of hunger because of some sort of shock event in their life, whether it's man-made conflict or a natural disaster. Today, there's about 113 million people who fall into that category. And that's really the group that the World Food Program is trying to meet. I think that kind of tells you the scope of the problem. And there's a lot of other sub-facets to that we can get into, like micronutrient deficiency and hidden hunger and problems of obesity and moderate food insecurity. So there's a lot of ways to kind of slice this pie. But the World Food Program is really concentrating on those 113 million people who really don't know where their next meal is going to come from. And you know, just by way of background, the, the World Food Program reaches probably close to 90 million people every single year across 80 different countries. It's really difficult to overstate the size of this operation. It still surprises me every day when I come into work. I learn something new that the World Food Program is up to. But today, I mean, we've got probably 16,000 employees around the world. There are 5,000 trucks. There's almost 100 aircraft and 20 ships moving food on the high seas closer to where people need it. So that's the problem of hunger, not getting better, really declining over the last couple of years, but thankful that there's organizations like WFP and others out there trying to make things better. Yeah, and it's really amazing, the numbers, as well as how hunger here in the U.S. tracks that as well. I know in New Hampshire, about one in 10 people are food insecure. And while it is a global problem, it is something that also hits very close to home. Yeah, the World Food Program and World Food Program USA focuses on hunger internationally. And we often get the question, you know, we've got hunger here at home. Why are we supporting these programs internationally? Well, these things aren't mutually exclusive in my mind. I mean, we can do better for humans everywhere uh, and meet people's food security needs both here at home and abroad. That's not really a decision that we have to make. But yeah, I mean, I'm fortunate that the numbers are tracking the way that they are and that they're so similar here in the U.S. as well. But again, speaking to global contradictions, I mean, uh, gosh, it's 2019 and hunger's on the rise. Can you talk a little bit about the reasons for why we have seen a, a rise in global hunger? I know the trend for several decades had been that hunger was going down. And as you mentioned, there's a recent spike in that. Can you talk a little bit about the causes of this? I mean, you mentioned climate change earlier, and I'm going to get to that, but let me set that one aside really quickly. When we categorize drivers of hunger today, it really falls into three buckets. The first being man-made conflict. And far and away, this is the largest driver of hunger today. And this shouldn't surprise us. When you look back over history, just about every single conflict event that we've had, major conflict event at least, has produced hunger outcomes. When you have conflict in a particular country, it destroys markets, it destroys the means of food production, and it causes food prices to skyrocket. And so man-made conflict throughout history has always really produced hunger as a byproduct. In fact, even if you look at the Second World War, there were probably as many people who died from starvation or starvation-related diseases as died in combat. And so this shouldn't be a surprise to us. But what is new about this today is that the number and frequency of violent conflict events around the world is really on the rise. We're seeing more conflict events today than we really have since the peak of the Cold War in the late 1980s and early 90s and the proxy wars that we saw all around the world. Hunger today is being driven by that rise in conflict. If you take that slice of, say, 821 million people who are undernourished around the planet, about 60% of those people are living in conflict-affected countries. 
and it's not a surprise to us that those people are experiencing higher levels of food insecurity. There's also this rise in forced displacement around the planet that we really haven't seen since the Second World War. Today, about 70 million people are living displaced from their homes, a lot of them internal in their own countries, but about 25, almost 30 million of them have crossed the border seeking refuge somewhere else. So that is probably one major bucket. The second is the one that I just referred to and that you alluded to earlier, which is climate impacts. Prior to coming to World Food Program USA, I worked for a program called the Climate Change Agriculture and Food Security Program of the CGIR. And that was a big international organization that was dedicated to establishing research and understanding the link between food systems and climate impacts. Today, from the World Food Program's perspective, we are responding to a huge number of climate-related extreme events that are really on the rise. So if you go back and kind of count the number of extreme climate-related events back in the early 1990s, things like droughts and heat waves and tsunamis, those sorts of things used to occur at a frequency of about 100 a year. And WFP and other organizations would have to mobilize for that response. Today, those things are happening at a frequency of about 215 a year. So climate-related extreme events are really driving hunger in ways that we haven't seen before. So those two combined factors, hunger and conflict, are making up the vast majority of WFP's portfolio. There is, though, a third bucket, which has kind of always been with us, and it really is just this underlying problem of pervasive poverty. When there is poverty, it's typically associated with hunger of some sort, whether it's moderate food insecurity or sometimes, in the worst cases, outright famine. Now, poverty, when you look at it around the world, I mean, really, the World Bank puts out the best statistics on this, and they estimate that there's about 790 million people around the planet living on that poverty threshold of about $1.90 a day. But I think more striking is that a much bigger percentage of that, about half of the world's population, is only living on three and a half dollars a day. Now, you can argue about whether there's a substantial difference between $1.90 and 350, uh, but when it comes to hunger, I don't know that there is. So pervasive poverty is really something that drives hunger around the planet. So when we're not facing man-made conflict or climate-related extreme events, poverty in these places is also helping to drive hunger. So can you talk to us a little bit about what solutions the World Food Program is working on, just some of the highlights of the things that are going on around the world? When you think of the World Food Program, for those who have have heard of, of what WFP does, chances are you think of our emergency responses. And those things are really important. You may have images of helicopters or air dropping food into tough environments, and that is a big portion of what WFP does. Really, at the end of the day, the organization is the first responder for natural disasters or man-made conflicts that produce hunger around the planet. So really is the last line of defense between somebody who is hungry and potential starvation. So that does represent a lot of what we do. And you know, if you look around the world right now, some major hunger crises that we are responding to with that sort of emergency assistance would be things like Yemen and Syria, South Sudan, Northeast Nigeria. These are all major emergencies. Also drought in Southern Africa. You know, you name it. There's probably at this point 13 or 14 major emergencies that the organization is responding to. So that's kind of the first big bucket of response. Now. Those uh, responses come in a couple different forms, though. Sometimes the World Food Program is delivering commodity assistance, which means in-kind bulk grains that are grown sometimes by American farmers, but sometimes purchased in other markets, and delivering those bulk commodities closer to where people need them. This is why the organization has such a large logistics footprint. 
But other times the organization is using cash-based assistance, even in these emergency situations, especially when there's functioning markets in places where WFP is working. So let's say a community is displaced and moves to an urban center and there is a sufficient number of shops that WFP can contract out. We can provide those displaced people with debit cards to be able to go and purchase food, just like you or I would if we went to a grocery store here in the United States. So that's kind of one big bucket of response. But increasingly, and I see this a lot because of the work that I do up on Capitol Hill, increasingly Congress and others are asking the World Food Program and other humanitarian organizations about their exit strategies. You know, right now, because of the drivers of hunger, and I mentioned conflict, but humanitarian events tend to be more protracted today than they've really ever been. In the past, humanitarian emergency might be more of a sprint, and now it's turning into a marathon where we are operating in countries not for months, but for years. So that necessarily requires organizations like WFP to change the way that they work and start looking for exit strategies that build resilience. One good example of that, I think, is what we call food assistance for assets. This is where community members are receiving food in exchange for work projects on critical pieces of infrastructure, whether it's irrigation or dams, or sometimes it's land regeneration activities. So all sorts of these activities are happening under our Food Assistance for Assets programs. The organization, for example, under that program built about 6,000 miles of roads last year. So these are some of the more longer-term activities the organization is involved in. The other major bucket that I can't really forget about is school feeding. I mean, WFP provides support to children around the world, about 16 million of them in 50 or 60 different countries providing that school meal. Very often, this is the only meal that a child is going to receive in a given day. It has incredible ramifications. These programs we've seen have increased enrollment in school. It has, in particular, helped to improve educational outcomes. It's helped get young girls, in particular, in the classroom and away from forms of exploitation. These programs, the school feeding work, is a big part of what WFP does. And then maybe the last thing I would say on this in terms of buckets of response is support to pregnant and nursing mothers and to children more generally in the form of improved supplementary nutritional products. So it used to be, I would say, looking back at the history of humanitarian assistance that we and others were really in the business of providing calories, period, any sort of calorie. Now, that has evolved greatly in recent decades. And today, WFP and other organizations are providing a fair amount of very specialized nutritional products. And these are things like ready-to-use therapeutic foods or ready-to-use supplementary foods. They're things that can help bring a child back from wasting or severe malnourishment. And so these are things that were never really part of our portfolio and were not part of the conversation in the past that have grown in sophistication. And the reason that we can do that now is we have much better targeting of who is hungry and the types of unique needs that they have. So maybe I'll stop there. WP does a lot more than that, but I think those are the big major buckets. One final question for you. Beyond compassion for your fellow man, why should people care about the problem of global hunger? It's a great question. You know, I think I think so much about how the U.S. has thought about the problem of hunger, uh, and really we have a long legacy of caring about this issue that dates back to really uh, some of our early founding days. But you're right in saying that typically we have thought about this from a moral perspective, this idea that engaging in food assistance and in helping people in need abroad is just core to who we are and represents the best of who we are as the American people. 
But increasingly, there are other reasons that we do these sorts of things. I mean, I think another one really, if you talk to the U.S. Department of Agriculture and USAID, especially under this administration, I mean, really they're trying to show market growth in other parts of the world as uh, markets for American products. And so humanitarian assistance and providing food assistance helps countries get back on their feet to become purchasers and participants in the global economy. These are not concessions that we're making to folks in different places. These are roundabout investments back in the American economy. The other more recent motivation, I would say, for engaging in food assistance has become more of a national security consideration. The links between conflict and hunger are pretty well known. We talked about the Second World War. We talked about conflict as a driver of hunger. But we also know increasingly and we've done a lot of work here at the World Food Program USA in a document called Winning the Peace, Hunger and Instability, showing the ways that hunger itself can be a driver of instability around the planet. And sometimes that shows up in food price spikes. Sometimes that shows up in recruitment by violent extremist organizations. But increasingly, the United States and members of Congress have been thinking more and more about the national security implications of not feeding people where they're hungry and when they're hungry. And we're coming to the realization that conflicts today are just not respecting borders and that we need to get ahead of these things by providing humanitarian assistance and meeting people when they're in the most desperate moments in their life. Well, thank you again. We are here with Chase Sova, Senior Director of Public Policy and Research at the World Food Program USA. We're really excited to have you up on October 3rd for a series of events and getting the answer to the big question of what we all can do about this. Thanks for having me, Tim. It's a really appreciate it. We're looking forward to being up in New Hampshire this week. University is a global leader in competency-based education and is working to take that model international. Through the global education movement, they are working to educate displaced people where they are so that they will better be able to integrate into the communities that they will live in. We sat down with two alumni of this program who are now students at Southern New Hampshire University to learn a little bit more about them, their experiences, and the program. Hello and welcome. We're here with two wonderful students slash administrators here at Southern New Hampshire University who work on the GEM, the Global Education Movement. So Nyla and Tujiza, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you tell us a little bit about yourselves and how you first got involved with the global education movement here at Southern New Hampshire University. Thank you, Tim. I'm Naila Mutani, and um, I'm from Rwanda. I got involved with GEM with one of the partner organizations. It's partner organization, which operates in Rwanda. I started studying there in 2014, and this partner organization is called Kepler, and I got to do some work studies with them and after my graduation I got an opportunity to work with some local organizations especially that focuses on women empowerment and after that I got an opportunity to come and pursue my MBA here at Southern New Hampshire University 
and I'm being sponsored by GEM. While I'm here in Manchester studying, I'm also doing a university paid with GEM as a gender specialist where I run gender inclusion initiatives. My name is Tijiza and I got involved with GEM at the very beginning when the Jam wasn't even there at that time. So it was the pilot program that Naila just talked about. I was part of the first cohort and uh, I started in 2013 and then finished my bachelor's degree with the program in 2016. I was also hired during that time. I worked with them until 2017 where I was a course facilitator. I also became an academic program associate. I also did event planning with the program. And then I came to the US under a presidential scholarship with Southern New Hampshire University to pursue my master's degree. I just finished it at the beginning of this year, 2019, and I am also currently enrolled. Actually, I just started my PhD studies at the School of Business, and I'm also working part-time with JAM as a special projects manager, but also part-time with the School of Business as a program coordinator. Well, best of luck to both of you and your continued studies, and we're so glad that you're here on campus with us now. Thank you. Not many people may know what the global education movement is. Can you give us a little bit of background about what the program is and what the goals are? Global education movement goals is to bring the Southern New Hampshire degree to refugee camps and also urban refugee students in different areas. Currently, they are located in South Africa, Malawi, Kenya, Rwanda. We also have a couple of partners in Lebanon. And our students there are chosen by the partner programs that we partner with, and we provide the platform. So they work on their projects on the College for America platform, which is a new program. And then we support the partners to also provide any in-person and coaching support to the students so they're successful on their platform. I think its main goal is to help refugees access higher education, which they wouldn't have got a chance to have. I think the average stay in a refugee camp is about 26 years, and this is a great program to really help people get educated, and once they are resettled, to better integrate into their new home communities and more quickly contribute to the uh, the overall economy. Can you guys give me a little bit about your experience in the program, how you feel it benefited you, and why it's an important program? To me, when I finished my high school, I had grades that could take me to good university, but also I was afraid because I wasn't going to go to university because my parents were not going to be able to pay for my school fees. So Kepler at that time came at the right moment for me, and I got to have the higher education, which I wouldn't have got a chance to get. And I got skills and experience that helped me into the jobs that I got. Let's say I got different professional skills like communications, critical thinking, problem solving. And these work studies that helped us to get helped us get experience. One of the examples I can say is the women preparation program that I was given a chance to direct and coordinate. So this women preparation program was to help refugees, women 
one of the refugees in Rwanda that Kepler is operating in, women were not really interested or motivated to apply. So I was given a chance to go and make sure that women are motivated and they're getting basic skills to help them get into university. Throughout implementing that project, I learned a lot, which made me qualified to get other jobs with one of the organizations in Rwanda that empower women. I learned a lot and I know that I will still go far. I would say that the experience has been very rewarding and I feel like any alternatives to what my life would have turned out to be if I wasn't in a program, I don't think I would have been where I am today. And just to give a little bit of background. I feel like I couldn't have joined any university options that were available for me at the time of me finishing high school because of financial issues, as she mentioned. And also like I'm the eldest of my family. So there were so many responsibilities at home that I needed to fulfill. And joining a local university really wouldn't have taken me to where I wanted to be in terms of my dreams. I really, really wanted to do a degree in an international setting in the U.S., in the Western world, because I feel like that's the kind of education that would have taken me to the life that I wanted to achieve. So when I heard about the program, I had it from one of my friends from high school, and he, or he had also applied to join the program. And he, he told me, oh, there's this online program that you can join and learn and you can get a degree. And in my head, I was like, eh, online, <laughs> scary. How do you do that? But I, was, I said, OK, I'm going to apply. I applied. I didn't really know what I was applying to. And it was a pilot program. So a lot of things weren't really clear at the very beginning. But once I started the program, the in-person learning and the support and the people, it was really a very different type of learning that I was used to. And I felt like I was learning something. It was quick. You learned quick. You learned a lot. And you learned things that were transferable to the global market. And I loved that. So a lot of skills, like Mela mentioned, professional skills, writing skills, communication skills, just like growth, the kind of growth that you would get if you were in a U.S. school. And it didn't take me a while. I did receive like a job within the first year of my studies and I excelled in it and I still learned a lot. I had a lot of coaching through my job and leadership came easy to me. I started taking leadership roles, leading students, staff, and yeah, it was it was amazing. And the fact that I was able to even get the presidential scholarship and come here and still do well in my master's program, it was like, yeah, the program did prepare me enough to actually be successful in whatever situation I wanted to be in. So my current achievements speaks for what the program represents to me. Like I have a master's, a bachelor's degree. I have spoken in different conferences. I have work experience now from the U.S., not just work study, work experience. And yeah, so I would say very positive, rewarding. And I look forward to what else I can do after I receive my PhD degree. So it is an online competency-based program being provided generally in refugee camps or areas of high displacement. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how it is being implemented on the ground? I would say that it differs per partner. Uh, we have, uh, if I talk specifically about Kepler, which I'm really familiar with, is that they have instructors and facilitators, course facilitators on campus, and they usually map 
their support and courses that they offer or the workshops or the modules that they offer to what the CFA projects, the competency-based projects, are require students to achieve. So most of the time, students will come in to the program with no computer literacy skills. They can't even turn on a laptop. They don't know how to communicate, no email etiquette, nothing at all. And at Kepler, what they do is they, they, they take that first six months or three months, I think, three to six months, yeah. right? Yeah, and they provide those basics. In terms of like writing, communication, professional competencies, mathematics, they provide all of that and then they enroll students to the program afterwards. But within even after getting enrolled, they still are taking courses to make sure that they're matching their skills to the, how the level of the projects increase because they get harder and harder with time. If I can also talk about, I think I also know a little bit about Malawi and Kenya. They don't provide as much support to the students, but GEM does get involved a lot with making sure that if students are struggling with something, then they talk to the partners and then they try to find a way to make sure that students are supported within that particular system. But I'm mostly familiar with Kepler because I was part of the yeah. program. Yeah. <laughs> and I've also went to Malawi and Kenya to provide some coaching. So really, if I can summarize, is that some of these students come in with a higher level of English, like in Kenya and South Africa and Malawi, while in, in Rwanda, it's a little bit lower. And then also in Lebanon, it's a little bit lower. In Lebanon, they're really advanced, even though they don't know English very well, right? So they know how to use computers. So it's like the, the, the services that we provide to support the students are tailored to where they come from and how much they know how to use the resources that are available for them to be successful in the program. Seemingly, this is a very important and successful program. But what's the selling point? Why should this program continue? And what benefits to not only the communities that are being served, but the wider world are we seeing? To me, I would say why should GEM continue to work is it gives an opportunity to people who are in the program to learn what they will be asked at the job market. They don't have to go in class and learn all these concepts that they are not going to use at work. That's number one. The number two is that GEM also put into consideration the employment, like employment opportunities for students is also something that GEM is concerned about. So they provide education, they also provide support so that students can get internship and employment, which is in my country and all these countries that GEM is operating in, People are very frustrated about getting jobs and employment. And uh, like uh, for me, I'll just take you back to the concept of like refugee and displacement. There's only 1% of yeah. 65 million refugees can access higher education. Not even like, actually not can access, have access to. So they have access to, but not many of them can actually access it or be able to be part of the higher education and if you think about it as such, there's a lot of opportunity to actually make an impact to that particular community. And it's one of those communities that are left behind by everyone. No one want to think about it because it's a massive problem. It's bigger than what we can actually solve. And I just admire the fact that Southern New Hampshire sees that as an opportunity to make a difference. And just going back to Southern New Hampshire goal, which is to, to provide education to non-traditional students. And I feel like this is another type of non-traditional students, right? They don't have access. They're in the countries where they're not allowed to do so many things. And 
SNU is like, you know what, let's set up a program that helps people who cannot really access all of these education benefits. And for me, that is the added value, right? And it takes another step where it's like SNU is not going there directly. It is empowering local partners to be able to make that difference. It benefits more than just SNU and the students. There's also a third party involved. And we've seen a lot of a spillover effect where it's like the program is able to help these students. Students are helping the community. The program is able to branch out to something else. Like Kefla is trying to do different things in like different programs, coding programs that are able to support other types of students. So it's big. At SNU, you wouldn't even notice them that much. But yeah. when you go to these different countries and these refugee settings, you would see the impact. Okay, one final question, and be honest, before going through the program, had either of you heard about New Hampshire or knew where it was? No. <laughs> I feel like I knew New York and all of the <laughs> Florida and California and Washington <laughs> and Texas for some reason, uh-huh. but no, and it's, it's interesting because it's next to Boston, and I knew Boston, so I remember... I really didn't. Honestly, I didn't know New Hampshire, that it was even a state. <laughs> I remember one of his, our friend, he came as a volunteer and he was like, he used to make fun of us like, oh, you are American students, so your university is in Boston. And we all knew that the university was in Boston. <laughs> so one day he realized that Actually, snow is not in Boston, it's in New Hampshire. And then he was like, oh, I think I lied to you. It's <laughs> in New Hampshire. And that was in 2017 when I graduated. Like, yeah. I was almost graduated. Yeah, and also, like, until now, I still think that Boston is a state. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. Okay, well, thank you both again for giving us your time and, and sharing your experiences sounds like in a really beneficial program and something that more people should know about. So thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Global in the Granite State podcast, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. Now, for all those trivia buffs out there who will be joining us for our October Global Trivia Night on the 15th, here's a little hint. Just remember, Captain Planet, he's our hero. (laughs) 